Welcome to the Radical Imagination Podcast, where we dive into the stories and solutions that are fueling change. I'm your host, Angela Glover Blackwell. Today, we explore the water crisis in Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities and the bold strategies to fix it. The episode was recorded before COVID-19 hit, but the topic is more relevant than ever. We're told again and again to wash our hands, but how do you do that when you don't have safe running water? or any running water at all. America mm-hmm. has the cleanest air and water in the world. We'll continue to use market forces. We don't have the cleanest advance. air and water in the world. Uh, I think we don't. Many Americans think that access to clean water is a problem only in the developing world. But more than two million people in the United States live without access to clean running water or a working toilet at home. Millions more struggle with the hazards of old and crumbling infrastructure, lead in pipes, high levels of arsenic in the water, and dysfunctional sanitation systems. In 2015, the country's attention turned to Flint, Michigan. Growing crisis in Flint, Michigan. Everyone who drank the water, an entire U.S. city, is at risk. Contaminated by toxic levels of lead, poisoning children in the community. And last year, the Environmental Protection Agency found dangerously high levels of lead in the water in Newark, New Jersey. So there's a lot of anger here in Newark, New Jersey, about the water situation. Thousands of residents are getting... There are also communities in the Deep South the Navajo Nation, parts of the Texas-Mexico border, and in California's Central Valley that are struggling to get drinking water. In a 2019 report closing the water gap in the United States, the nonprofits U.S. Water Alliance and Dig Deep found that race is the strongest predictor of who's likely to become vulnerable in the nation's water gap. To talk more about this, we're joined by Radhika Fox. She is the CEO of the U.S. Water Alliance, based in Oakland, which co-authored the report. Radhika, welcome to Radical Imagination. Thanks for having me, Angela. Tell us when the idea to do this comprehensive report about water in our state came about. Well, you know, the U.S. Water Alliance had been working on the intersection of race, poverty, and water systems uh, really after the Flint water crisis and really trying to make the case for the nation about why all people need safe, clean access to water. And when we were doing that first phase of research that was really mostly about urban communities, we came across this report from 2000 that said that 2 million people in this country were living without flushing toilets and drinking water in their home. And it was a number that really haunted us. Uh, How could it be that in a nation of such abundance, two million people were still living without the basics? So how did you go about doing the research? We worked with Dig Deep, which is an organization that had been helping create water access solutions in the Navajo Nation. We also partnered with Michigan State University, and they were the ones that had done this report called Still Living Without the Basics in 2000 that looked at that population. And then with those partners, we first tried to understand what does the census and other federal data sets tell us about who lives without water? And we really understood how limited that information was. And that there really was nothing out there that talked about the lived experience for people. How do they cope when they don't have this basic access? And when you say lived experience, what exactly do you mean? Well, some of the things that we saw in these communities were just unacceptable. For example, in the Navajo Nation, 
people who were, you know, spending $200 a month on gasoline just to truck water from miles and miles away. Or some of the communities in Appalachia are spending over $100 a month on bottled water. So that is the lived experience of people. So let's go a little deeper there. Who are the people who are most affected and for how long have they been affected? Um, Well, a couple of things that we found through this research. Um, One is we know that race is the single biggest predictor of if you're going to have access to water or not. This is not surprising. So Native Americans are the most impacted. They are 19 times more likely than white people to live without plumbing, safe drinking water, wastewater service. In the Deep South, that is another significant hotspot community where African-Americans in particular are impacted. Um, There, the really big challenge is, one, they're still on septic systems. And those septic systems aren't regulated. And it is then impacting the groundwater that is then their drinking water source. Obviously, poverty is also very much correlated to this issue. We actually found that folks in these hotspot communities that we looked at were living on average on $10,000 to $30,000 a year. And one thing that was, I think, really surprising to us is that there are actually some communities in this country where we're actually seeing some backsliding places that had access and didn't any longer, whether it was because uh, wells were running dry, groundwater had been uh, so contaminated. And so some of these backsliding communities were in places as diverse as Delaware, Idaho, Kansas, South Dakota. What are some of the solutions that you lay out in the report in order to address this lack of access? The solution has to actually be fit for purpose for the community that we're talking about. In India and Africa, there are a lot of community-centered solutions. For example, uh, several families pooling together for a joint wastewater system so that they'll be able to process that. And, And then the second thing is we have to deploy resources differently. Right now, the federal government makes resources available for very centralized infrastructure in places where the built environment already exists. But in some of these other communities where they're either very small systems or there's no water systems at all, we need technical assistance resources that can go out there and support them. The other thing is we have to build community power to both advocate for solutions, to collect the data in their communities and call for the types of investments these communities need. I think one of the most inspiring examples of that that we saw in our research was the work of the Community Water Center in the Central Valley of California, where they started really with engaging with residents whose wells had been running dry, their groundwater had been contaminated, but actually they knew that they had to leverage their community power for state policy change, and they did. That's terrific to know that there really is a pathway. But in 2019, California passed the Safe and Affordable Water Fund that will provide $1.4 billion over the next decade for clean water projects. Could you talk more about how this money will be spent and what it will mean for water equity? Well, this is one of the biggest wins that we have seen in water. 
right now, um, as far as what it will mean, there is a steering committee and advisory group that's currently being established that will set priorities for what investments will be made. But I think we know this is going to really make progress in the state because one of the things that the fund does is it's calling for grants, not only loans, so that especially the most impoverished communities who can't actually repay loans will be able to access these funds in, in a way that's been unprecedented here in California. But we're still very early, right, in the process. you reframing the conversation about water? Um, Because you and I both know that how you frame it has so much to do with how people see their interest in finding a solution. I was just curious about that. Yeah. We really try to frame water as the medium to achieve all the other things that people care about and want in their lives. What is more important than water? So I think part of the framing is It's not about water. Water is the medium for all the other things we want every community in this country to have. Those of us who get involved in change, and I'm fortunate enough to meet so many people who are doing it, they end up really tapping into their superpower. When you think about that, Radhika, what's your superpower? Oh, my goodness. What a question. (laughs) I think my superpower is to help people see themselves in whatever the issue is at hand and get them really excited and galvanized around something. Thank you for talking with us, Radhika. Thank you, Angela. Radhika Fox is the CEO of the U.S. Water Alliance based in Oakland. She joined us from our studios in Berkeley, California. Coming up on Radical Imagination, we hear about a community's fight for water in California's Central Valley. Stay with us. More when we come back. Are you someone who wants to create a society where all can participate and prosper? Visit our website at RadicalImagination.us to take action and connect with campaigns and organizations around issues covered by this podcast. It's crucial that we get support to continue to lift up stories and solutions to address our most pressing problems. To do this, we need you to tell your friends and family about Radical Imagination. Ask them to subscribe, share, and comment on their chosen podcast platform. You can also find us on the Race and Wealth Podcast Network. Like what you've heard today? Tell us about it. Go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review Radical Imagination. And thank you. And we're back. California, the largest economy in the country, still can't provide clean water to nearly a million of its residents. In recent years, impacted communities in the state's Central Valley have organized to demand their right to clean water. To talk more about this, we're joined by Susanna DeAnda. She's a longtime community organizer in the Central Valley, and she is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Community Water Center in Visalia, California. Susanna, welcome to Radical Imagination. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
What's the Central Valley like? A lot of people, when they think of California, think of the Bay Area and they think of Los Angeles. The Central Valley, I think, is the fastest growing part of the state. And what's going on there? What is life like? I've got to say, the Central Valley is definitely the heart of the state. It's the place where we grow a lot of food across the country. As a matter of fact, in Tulare County, we're the number one milk-producing county in the world. That said, we also have these injustices that are throughout the entire Central Valley, where hardworking families are having to work and live in areas where they're exposed to daily contaminants, communities where we have no sidewalks, no basic necessities like public parks, community centers, and we don't have access to safe drinking water in many of our communities that are made up of low-income people of color. And there's cases that state that if you're low-income and a person of color like myself, and if you live in the Central Valley, you're going to have higher chances of being exposed to toxic water. I'm talking about communities that are having to pay some of the highest rates for water they cannot drink, and on top of that, have to buy bottled water. And I work with many mothers who have to worry that their children don't drink the water they use to brush their teeth because they worry they're going to get sick. Now, you were the co-founder of the Community Water Center. But before that happened, it took a lot of groundwork to really get a sense of the magnitude of the water issues in the Central Valley. Could you walk us through how this all began? Early on as an organizer... I was reading a lot of water quality reports that said that residents were exposed to things like nitrates, and nitrates were linked to cancer, the blue baby syndrome. When a baby that's six months old ingests high levels of nitrates into their bodies, the blood literally is unable to absorb oxygen, so the baby turns blue. There was other contaminants like arsenic. As I was reading these water quality reports, I kept thinking, well, what is this? Do people even know what this is? And what, what are the health impacts that can, you know, affect folks? How far back do the water issues go? You know, unfortunately, the conditions that we're faced with have been here for a long time. Early in my career... I got myself the copy of the Tulare County General Plan and these planning documents that every county needs to update every year are really important to review and to ensure that while they update them, they continue to invest proper resources into our communities. So while I was looking throughout this document, it hadn't been updated since 1971. It took me by surprise when I came across the public liquid and waste management element of the general plan that basically said that little or no public commitment was going to be given to 16 communities that the county deemed to have no authentic future. And as I read this policy, I realized like, oh, the conditions that we're seeing in our communities where they're not having access to reliable, safe drinking water was very intentional. Because at least in the Tulare County General Plan, they specifically said that and they actually implemented this policy. I went door knocking and I would ask folks, do you drink your tap water? And they would say, no, I don't drink it. And I would say, well, why not? And it was the common answer from a lot of folks. And they would just say, we don't drink it because we don't trust it. And it was clear to me that access to good information was one of the biggest problems. And as we started to organize community by community, I quickly understood within a year of the campaign that this issue was, frankly, widespread. And every community needed to have access to good information on water quality and, most importantly, what residents could do about it to change that reality in their communities.
And it was not a coincidence that while I was learning that folks did not have access to safe drinking water, that a lot of the infrastructure was old and dilapidated and was leaking because we can actually see weeds growing where the pipeline was busted. And I went into our communities and I said, look, there's a document that says that you have no authentic future. And so therefore, there's not going to be any public infrastructure funding to upgrade the infrastructure. Do you think that's okay? And of course, residents said, no, it's not okay. And in addition to doing the organizing, you were also doing research and collecting data. What were some of the most revealing or surprising pieces of information you were able to come across? One, we quickly realized that the actual entities that many of our communities work in were the same entities that were polluting our drinking water. And that would mean that we needed to regulate their bosses or the entities that they worked in to protect and prevent further contamination into our groundwater, while at the same time making sure that our residents weren't going to get laid off or targeted. Specifically, one of the major contaminants that we're seeing in the Central Valley are nitrates. And the three main sources of nitrates are coming from chemical fertilizer, animal manure, and leaky septic tanks. So... When that happens and our residents are relying on the local economy of agriculture, it was really important that we would work with the regional water board, in this case, the regulator, to ensure they understood that they needed to stop and prevent further contamination of our groundwater sources. Well, let's talk about impacted residents. How did the people react to the information you laid in front of them? You know, I can tell you people were making the connection and they were very grateful to be given the opportunity to even talk about this. And specifically, I've had the luxury of working with many leaders. And one major leader was Lucy Hernandez, who has been a mother, a grandmother, a mentor in her community of West Goshen. She was having to deal with poor drinking water the inspiration for her to say, you know, I want to be part of change. So we got in communication and she became the first Latina local water board president for her water company. And she helped access resources to be the first community to receive a grant to be provided bottled water. But it really shows that ordinary residents, moms and grandmothers, can make a lot of change. And this woman, this amazing activist, has been part of change most recently, where her grandchild and her grandbabies have been in the state capitol marching with us to ensure that we would pass the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund this year. And Lucy was part of that journey, and she was with her mother, her daughter and her grandbaby led us marching. Que queremos? What do we want? Clean water, agua limpia. She would say, when? Cuando? We would say, now, ahora. Ahora! To me, it was a beautiful thing to see how the generations of her activism continues, and she's a great role model for that. What do you think makes these communities unique in terms of how they've mobilized to demand a basic right? For me, the uniqueness is that ordinary residents who have to work out in the fields with over 100 plus degrees still make the commitment to come to our meetings 
And for them, there's no excuse. They have a long day of work and they still come to our meetings. And if they have to take time off of work, they will do that because they believe that access to safe drinking water is a basic human right. I think that people who work for change bring everything they've got to it, including their superpower. What's your superpower? My heart. I'm passionate. I understand the crisis and I want change. Susana, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Susana DeAnda is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Community Water Center in Visalia, California. COVID-19 has laid bare what equity advocates and communities of color have always known. Structural racism affects everything in society, including something as basic as water. I find it stunning that the U.S. does not recognize water as a human right and that people, children, must go to the street to demand it. America must seize this moment of societal disruption to reinvent our inadequate and unjust water systems. Let's reimagine how we value water and manage it wisely and sustainably to serve all people and communities, now and for generations to come. Radical Imagination was produced by Futuro Studios for PolicyLink. The Futuro Studios team includes Marlon Bishop, Andreas Caballero, Ruxandra Guidi, Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, Leah Shaw, Lita Hollowell, and Sam Burnitz. The PolicyLink team includes Rachel Gashinga, Glenda Johnson, Fran Smith, Jacob Kulkasian, and Millie Hawk Daniel. Our theme music was composed by Taka Yusuzawa and Alex Segura. I'm your host, Angela Glover Blackwell. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us online at radicalimagination.us. Remember to subscribe and share. Next time on Radical Imagination. To the people of Baltimore and the demonstrators across America, I heard your call for no justice, no peace. Transforming the criminal legal system. That's next on Radical Imagination.